This podcast contains strong language and adult themes, including discussion of suicidal thoughts. It's probably two weeks out from a, a real big major exam. And I'd been studying really hard, not really sleeping, quite stressed out. I remember being in a law lecture. Got there early. Three guys already sitting in the back row. A couple of rows down from the back was a mate I went to school with. He, he waved out to me and he's like, Egan, come here, come here, sit, sit, sit by me. So I sat by him. So we had a bit of a catch-up. And he was asking me how I was. And I said, oh, you know, I'm pretty stressed. Got this exam coming up, you know, but I'm doing okay. And then he said to me, oh, look, bro, we're going to have a party this weekend. We want you to come along, man, barbecue, some beers. I told him no. I'm too busy studying. But he kept on at me and said, nah, bro, come on now. You need to blow up some steam. I'm going to grab you at 6 o'clock, man. I'm going to drag you there if I have to. So eventually I said, yeah, yeah, okay, sweet ass, man. 6 o'clock Saturday. Oh, yeah. I'll come along. And then he said, bro, I've got to ask you a question, though. And I said, yeah, yeah, what? And he goes, hey, you know, at Phil's party. And I went, yeah. He goes, how drunk were you, bro? I said, oh, no, no, I was drunk as, I was drunk as, bro. Cut to the gills. He goes, and how stoned were you? I said, oh, I, I was flying like a kite, bro. And he goes, yeah, yeah, no, I figured that, eh? Because, like, you were saying and you were doing some real crazy stuff, bro. And you are freaking a whole bunch of people out. They were coming up to me and they're like, hey, what's wrong with your boy, man? Far out. I say, no, 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 he's just stoned. You know, he's just pissed. No, leave him alone. He's, he's a good guy. And then he said to me, but you're okay, eh, bro? Everything's okay. I said, yeah, yeah, no, I'm sweet, man. I was just, I was just pissed and stoned, bro. He goes, oh, okay, cool as, cool as. Out of My Mind is a podcast about mental health produced for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. In each episode, one person talks about their life and about the view from inside their head. Today, Angels and Demons with Egan Bidwa of Whanganui. Midway through this lecture, these dudes up behind us started just talking. They started just talking about nothing. I'm trying to focus on this big exam coming. These guys are distracting me, so I turned around and just really politely shushed them, put my finger to my lips and went, shh, <laughs> and turned back around. And no sooner had I done that, as I heard one of the guys up the back going, did, did he just shush us? Does he think we're five? What the heck? And they kept on yakking. So I turned around again, being all polite still, and went, can he just, just kind of like <laughs> motioned again with this shush on my lips. Turned around, and then I heard one of them go, he did just try and shush us. What a dick. And another guy went, you know what? Just go down there, punch him in the back of the head. I thought, oh, What? These guys want to have a bit of a fight? Okay, no worries. So what I basically did was I kind of put down my pen and stood up, spun around, pointed my finger at these guys and pretty much went, yeah, one have a go at me, come on, my own ass, I'm so smashing it, come on. <laughs> All the while my mate's sleeping on me and he's struggling with me and he's like, bro, what the hell are you doing? I said, these dudes up the back want to rumble me, man. And he's like, bro, just calm down. I said, nah, nah, these dudes over here challenged me out, they're trying to step me out. Come on, dudes, you guys want to go, let's go, let's go. My mate's going, bro, just calm down, what the hell's going on? I said, these dudes over here are trying to smash me. And he said, what dudes? I said, these dudes at the back. And he said, there's nobody there, bro. There's nobody there. So Egan's a Celtic name. Apparently it means fiery, ardent one, which is probably quite fitting. Sometimes I think you're cursed by a name. The name Bidwa, however, is French. And that came from a French whaler, Louis Bidwa, who married into the tribe many, many years ago. Chances are any Bidwa you bump into in, in New Zealand is going to be Māori.
I'm the youngest of four siblings. I have two older brothers and a sister. Prior to me being born, however, I had a second sister, but she passed away in Waikaria. She actually ended up drowning in the river there. My sister, even though I didn't know her, of course, physically anyway, she's one of the constant voices that I hear. She's just a guardian with me all the time. And a couple of people have asked me, well, how do you know it's your sister's voice if you've never heard her voice? I know it is. (laughs) My nana, my kui on dad's side, she lived in Tapuna, so we would pop up for holidays. My nan is another one of my constant voices as well. She passed away when I was nine or ten. I think it was about a month after her passing that yeah, she popped in. Yeah, it's been with me ever since too. My mum is a very um, interesting person as well. She has very similar experiences to me, or I have very similar experiences to her. She can sense things that are around her. She's certainly a very spiritual person, which I find quite interesting, given that her background was also very much as a psychiatric nurse, and I guess there must be some sort of internal conflict when you're trained to view things in a specific medical way. My mum was my main support growing up, because I knew she understood where I was coming from. Even when I was a baby and, you know, people were holding me and carrying me around, I'd be looking over their shoulder and cooing and stuff at something in the corner and people would be like, what's what's this kid doing? (laughs) And my parents, oh, my mum particularly would say, that's okay, he's just, yeah, he's seeing stuff. My mum was quite active within various spiritual groups in Tūrangi. Quite often she would go with a group to a house that needed blessing, but she would take me along as well. My role in many ways was as a bit of a spotter. So they would send me into the house. For me, it was a game. You know, I'd see something in a room and then I'd yell out, Koro, it's in here, and oh no, it's moving, and I'd chase it. Some of the things that I would see would be just like if someone was fully dressed and actually sitting right in there like an absolute real person, I'd see it that clearly. Well, there's an older lady, she has white hair, she's got such and such eyes, she's currently sitting, I can see she's got a walking stick. It was very, very specific. Other times, I might not get such a clear visual. My earliest memory of seeing something, probably three years old, I remember it clear as day. It was a tall golden pillar of light that was standing at the foot of my bed. Even though I couldn't see any facial features or anything like that, it felt male and it also felt like it was facing towards me and and watching over me. And I remember talking to my mum about it and saying, look, there's this golden man that's standing at the end of my bed. And I remember her saying that that's okay that those are called upper, they're called angels. But I remember after about a month, I woke up and there was another one. (laughs) There was a second pillar of light just standing off to the side and this one felt female. It was quite different this time because both of them I kind of sensed were now facing away from me towards my bedroom window. And that was when I had the most foreboding kind of cold feeling. I could almost sense something coming from outside the house. The only word I can use for it was evil. And I kind of sensed that whatever this thing was, was now directly outside my bedroom window. And at that point, those two golden lights just merged together, formed this great big ball of golden light, and then just roared out the window and this feeling was gone. So I guess the only thing I can surmise from that is that's what they're waiting for. They were just waiting and keeping an eye on me until this thing showed up to sort of take it out. It was when I started school that I actually started feeling a little bit abnormal. You know, there'll be kids that'll be playing out in the um, playground and I'd run up and I'd say, hey, who's this old lady with you and stuff like that? And they're like, what old lady? I said, the old lady behind you. People thought I was a freak. Absolutely. 
by the age of seven, I had only a very, very small friend group. I remember one day coming to school and I noticed a girl in, in our class and I could just sense and I could just feel, like literally, I just felt all this pain coming off her. And when I focused on her, I'd seen what had been done to her that previous night. She had actually been sexually molested. And I could, it was like I could absolutely feel it and I could see that sort of occurring. And so at morning break, I bowled up to her and I gave her a hug and she asked me what that for. And I said, oh, that's for what was done for you last night. You know, I'm really sorry about that sort of stuff. And she totally freaked out. Absolutely understandable. Growing up, you've got to learn wisdom of what you do share, what you don't. I mean, she didn't need to hear me say that. We never mentioned any other sort of thing to our GP or anything like that. I mean, we only ever went to the GP for anything physical. So no one had actually been informed of these sorts of things. Any sort of clinical or pathological assessment it was seen as just who it was within the family. And saying that, I kind of also got shunned by the extended whanau as well. I remember being on one of our marae, I think probably for a tangi, and the younger kids were teasing me. And I remember one of the karaua, one of the older guys, I'm saying to these kids, hey, 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 don't don't pick on him, leave him alone. And I thought, oh, this is awesome, this koro's standing up for me. And the next thing the koro said is, don't do that, he'll curse you. And so these kids grew up with this fear of me having some sort of ability to curse them, you know, as if I'm some sort of witch doctor or something like that. I felt quite ostracised within my culture. Just as a snapshot, is there anything going on for you right now? No more than the usual. I mean, my usual is I hear three voices. Yeah, three voices. Um, off to the left of me is my sister Bobby. Off to the right of me is my nanny. And there's a new one that's just joined. It's someone who passed away recently. So they're with me, and I'm really, really happy this person's with me. What do I see? A friend of mine asked me once, he said, can you describe what you see and how you see things? And I said, bro, do you remember when we were growing up at school and we had those overhead projectors? You know, <laughs> it's kind of like early, early PowerPoint, transparent sheets that projected images or text up a wall or a sheet. So my reality is kind of like on one of these transparent sheets, but I'm not seeing one sheet. I'm seeing upwards of 11 different sheets. And on every single one of those sheets is a separate reality. It's just moving constantly in and out of focus. And my friend asked me, he said, so... What are those realities? I said, well, I believe that they're the past, the present, the future, and alternative versions of all of that, or none of that, or just moving in and out of focus. So, yeah, that's a little bit distracting (laughs) to see that. It wasn't until I left Hoti Village in Tūrangi and moved up to Hamilton to study at Waikato University that things started getting really troubling. I guess I wasn't ready at that time for the amount of energy I'd be sensing. When I'm around somebody, I'm not just sensing that person there, I'm sensing other things that are with that person. I'm sensing if they're carrying any form of pain or trauma or all that sort of stuff. So going from a really small community, so therefore a small amount of additional input, to then go and be dumped in with 10,000 other people. (laughs) It was just overload. My senses just couldn't deal with it. 
got to the point when I'd be walking through university and the whole place was just noise, voices everywhere and I'd look around and okay the person's walking along but there are 10 other things with this person and it was probably at that time that particularly my vision started getting a little bit more horrific so when I saw somebody and if I focused on them I'd see pain that they've been inflicted upon them or pain that they've inflicted on other people as well and I was, I was really struggling with dealing with that. Strangely enough, growing up in the central North Island, I'd never touched marijuana. Now that's a major thing, because like Tūrangi, its only growth industry is its marijuana. I hadn't touched any pot or any of that sort of stuff. But I went to a student party and got offered marijuana, got offered this joint, and I turned it down initially. And then I'd go to another student party and people would be smoking dope, and I got offered this joint again, and I turned it down. This person that I'd become kind of friends with, he offered me this joint. Bro, just take a puff, take a puff, you need to settle down. We can see you're not relaxed. So I did. I woke up the next morning and I didn't hear any voices anymore. And I walked through university and I'd only see that person there. I wouldn't see 10 other things with that person. And so I thought, oh, awesome, fabulous. Maybe marijuana is what I need to use. So I ended up using a bit of marijuana, which would like kill off the voices, kill off the visions, kill off everything and help me sleep. Because sleep is a real interesting thing when you have these experiences, because they don't stop even when you sleep. So I found initially marijuana kind of helped me out, but these senses would come back. The voices would come back louder, the things I'd see would be coming back clearer and more horrific. Strangely enough, even though I'd like to think I'm, I'm a reasonably intelligent man, obviously I'm still kind of stupid and thought maybe I just needed more marijuana. So we smoked more marijuana. <laughs> and the same thing would happen, yep, all the voices and everything would go away, but eventually they'll come back. And they'll come back larger and harder and faster and more pained and more intense. It got to the point where it didn't matter how much I smoked. Seriously, I was smoking so much pot at that time, I would have made Cheech and Chong look like a choir voice. And I guess the real disturbing stuff started. I remember being in a law lecture, turning to this guy and saying to him, nah, thanks, mate, I've got one. And this guy looked at me and he goes, what? And I said, oh, I've got a pen, but thank you, mate. And he just looked at me again and he said, what? I said, well, you sat down and you asked me if I needed a pen because you had a spare one. And he said to me, bro, I, I just sat down. I haven't said anything to you. So that, that didn't phase me on gate three days. And then I remember being in another, another law lecture and I was jotting down what the lecturer was writing on the board. He was writing down all these like case notes and stuff that we had to study and look up. And it was like so-and-so versus such and such and Crown versus Egan. And I wrote down Crown versus, I looked up again. No, oh no, that's Crown versus Edwards. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd seen him write Crown versus Egan, but up on the board was Crown versus Edwards. Again, it didn't phase me. And then I remember being in another law lecture, and this is a running theme, it's probably don't do law, it drives you bonkers. I thought this guy who was sitting a couple of seats to the right of me was trying to mess with my head. He would start whispering towards me, and yet any time I looked at him, he would close his mouth. I would hear him going, hey, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'd turn around and look at him, and he'd have his mouth closed, and he'd be looking at me all weird. A couple of minutes later, he'd go, hey, look at me again, look at me. And so I looked at him again, no, he's got his mouth closed. So I had this marvellous plan. If I got to law lectures really, really early, I could get right up to the back row and I can keep an eye on everyone. So if anyone plays their whisper shut up games, 
I'll be able to spot them. So that's what I did for a while. It was brilliant. No one tried to mess with my head. No one was trying to whisper and shut up when I looked at them. And I remember being about two weeks out from a, a real big major exam. Not really sleeping, quite stressed out. Got there early, but up the back with three guys. Mate, I went to school with. Egan, come here, come here. And Phil's party. You were saying and you were doing some real crazy stuff. These dudes up behind us just talking. <laughs> Did he just shush us? Can he just. What a dip. Punch him in the back of <laughs> These dudes up the back. Dudes over here challenge me. Let's go, let's go. What dudes? I said, these dudes at the back. And he said, there's nobody there, bro. There's nobody there. But I could see them. I could see three guys clear as day standing there, eyeballing me, taunting me, calling me out. Pretty soon after that, I found myself in A&E, accident and emergency in Hamilton. And I was having a chat with this really tall guy in a nice suit. Having worked in mental health now for over 20 years, I now know that guy would be a duty registrar doing an assessment on me. So he asked me a whole bunch of questions. And then next thing I know, I was in the back of a patrol car taking a very, very quick trip to Tukanui Psychiatric Institute at 18 years old for an assessment for psychosis. Do we have a quick break there? I'll yeah, just have a quick break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was originally committed for uh, an assessment and appraisal for drug-induced psychosis. Of course, for the amount of pot I was smoking, that was surmised that I was experiencing this psychotic break due to drugs. When drugs were out of my system and I still had those supposed psychotic breaks, it was deemed to actually be paranoid schizophrenia. It's kind of chicken and egg stuff. The reality was I was seeing and hearing and, and feeling things before I even smoked my first joint, so it certainly wasn't that. However, what I'd certainly acknowledge was abusing that substance drove me into, I guess, levels of senses that I couldn't deal with. So yes, in some ways, the system was right. It was, in fact, the marijuana that had created this destabilisation and, and psychotic break. However, I was just kind of relatively fine with it prior to that for a big chunk of my life. So my treatment and my management in Tukanui the highest point, I guess, of my medication regime, I was on four different antipsychotics, three different sedatives. I was on at or over the maximum daily dosage for each and every single one of them. So I was in what's called drug toxicity. I'd gained almost 40 kgs in the space of about four months. <laughs> when you're on that kind of medication, you can just think about food and grow another butt. <laughs> it just kind of happens. The other thing that happens when you're under that amount of medication is effectively you're a drug lock zombie. So a couple of orderlies will come and pick me up from my room and they'll kind of shuffle drag me to the day room um, and they'll sit me down in a chair and pretty much just leave me there to draw all over myself. I couldn't move, I couldn't speak, I couldn't disengage from anything that was happening. When you're unable to move or speak, bodily functions don't stop. You still need to go to the toilet. You're unable to get up and go to the toilet, nor can you ask someone to give you a hand. So eventually inevitability happens. People notice there's a, a strange smell. <laughs> they realise it's you. And if you're lucky, you get taken to the showers, cleaned off, clothed again, and put back in the day room. However, if you're like 
me a couple of times you'd get dragged out into the front yard you'd be stripped off you'd be hosed down with a fire hose you'd be given a bit of a kicking for being a filthy mongrel for soiling your pants and then you'd be dragged off to a seclusion room and, and tossed in there as punishment that amount of medication actually wasn't having any impact upon what I was experiencing or, or hearing. It wasn't shutting down my voices. It wasn't shutting down my feelings. What was I hearing? Basically a million and one screaming voices. And they were really, really derogatory voices. They were telling me I'm a piece of shit. Kill yourself. Die right now. You don't deserve life. Kill yourself, you piece of shit. Just over and over. It's hearing the most repugnant stuff being said about other people. Someone walked in the room, one voice would kick off and start swearing about that person and calling them the most repugnant names. What I was seeing as well was just all the bad bits of the Bible. Pretty much take the book of Revelations add that <laughs> again and again and again and again pretty much anything remotely horrific you'll possibly imagine stick that all together and then throw that in my head so that's pretty much what I was seeing the most foulest stuff playing out right in front of me I was feeling things as well I was feeling things touching me and hitting me and poking me and cutting through me it was like barbed wire was running through my body I need to be really upfront and clear about something here I absolutely acknowledge that some people find hospitalisation helpful. I absolutely acknowledge that people who go to work on health services aren't doing it to create harm on people. They're not in it for the money, so the reason they're doing it is they have a compassionate calling. Thankfully, by the 1990s, or I was actually committed in 1990, a lot of those, I guess, horror stories that you hear coming out of places like Tukunui, they weren't occurring as regularly. I'm just putting that out there before I start talking a, a little bit about my treatment and management in Tukunui. Many years ago, I managed to get a number of my old patient files back. There was a lot of times when I was reading through them that was quite painful. I remember um, reading nursing notes, reading their viewpoint, their summary of what my behaviours were like. There was kind of this huge narrative of my unwellness and these patient files that were from a very, very specific lens. So there are a number of examples of where staff observations certainly weren't congruent with my experiences at the time. patient was out in the yard yelling and screaming, gesticulating wildly, and yelling violent obscenities, punching at the ear. My reality is I was doing a haka. I had so much energy I could feel it coming up through the ground and just running through my body. I could feel all this energy burning within me. And I took myself out into the yard to allow it to dissipate back into the ground. I specifically chose that yard because there's nobody else there. I didn't want to disturb anyone. And I broke out into doing this haka, this kamate kamate, just over and over and over with so much energy to try and burn it up. I was taken away to a seclusion room and locked up for three days for that because they viewed me as being a threat. The patient has an anal fascination, constantly talking about anuses and bums. That's not what had occurred. They had no pillow, and I asked for a pillow, and they brought me a cushion, and I said, I don't actually want a cushion. Can you get me a pillow? And they said, no, you can have that cushion. And I said, no, I don't want to use a cushion, because our head is seen as a very tapu, sacred part. There's no way we should be laying it down on a cushion, which is where your nunu, where your kumu, where your, your bottom sits. I was just requesting perhaps a bit more cultural appreciation <laughs> of that sort of stuff. That didn't result in a seclusion event, thankfully. It did result in me not getting a pillow, though, and them taking away the cushion. Just, that's fine, that's fine. 
patient in a room, staring blankly against the wall, muttering incomprehensible word salad and gibberish, and was asked to be quiet. I was saying karakia. I was saying prayers to, I guess, calm myself and to manage what was going on for me. I was saying prayers in karakia to seek protection and safety within these experiences. So my staring off blankly at the wall was me focusing on my karakia. The incomprehensible word salad and gibberish was te reo Māori, you know, official language of this country. <laughs> Their method of asking me to be quiet was a staff member came in and grabbed me by my long hair, pulled my head back and screamed in my face, shut up nigger. So that's, that's hardly asking me to be quiet and the mere fact they used the n-word to me suggests that they probably actually knew that this was an incomprehensible gibberish that I was speaking Māori. Patient was seen in a room of performing a satanic ritual. There was a person who was staying in the unit. He, he committed suicide in his room. I asked the staff if they could get one of the komātua in to do a blessing just to cleanse it out. They refused. In fact, one of them said, well, that's okay, he's Catholic anyway, he's going to hell. <laughs> so I went and took some water down there and I did a karakia within that room myself. I thought, if these guys aren't going to do it, then I'll attempt to bless this room and, and make it safe for the next person. I got punished for that. My reality was these medications weren't working. The medications removed my ability to distance myself from these experiences. So my day consisted of sitting there, literally screaming and begging for death in my head. Eventually, the docs started having discussions around, well, we can't keep throwing medications at this guy. We've tried everything. It's not working. Or maybe if we can sort of in some way alter his brain patterns, that might actually be helpful. So they tried um, electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. I've received 27 courses of ECT. That's 27 times it been carried off and strapped down to a table and had the national grid run through my skull in an effort to, I guess, jumpstart my brain activity. One thing I also picked up when I was going through my patient files is that I noticed that when I'd be receiving ECT, it'd be noted in there. But it would also note the various medications that they use, sedatives and stuff like that, so you don't actually convulse out on the table. But there are a couple of times where there were actually no listed sedatives or anticonvulsants. So basically I was being shocked without that sort of stuff to stop me convulsing. And that was certainly my memories of it. I distinctly remember being strapped down and having one of the orderlies lean over me and abuse me and tell me, unless I play the game, we're gonna keep doing this. And it just basically fried me to my head was smashing against the table. So that wasn't treatment for me. That was pretty much, yeah, torture. There was another big meeting pretty soon after that. My parents, they thought it was a discharge meeting, but they were wrong. There's a particular part of our health act where you basically place someone as a ward of the state. So they had this conversation with my parents. They weren't trying to be cruel. In fact, they were trying to be humane. They didn't want my parents to constantly have to come and visit, to see me becoming more and more unwell. And I remember the doctor saying, your son, Egan, your youngest boy, yeah, he's not coming home. Egan has potentially one of the worst cases of a paranoid schizophrenia we have ever encountered. There is absolutely no form of treatment that can bring him back. We are going to ask you guys to please allow us to take him into our care. 
If, however, you choose not to allow that, we will commence legal proceedings to ensure that that occurs. The other thing that I remember so clearly from that day was the look in my parents' eyes. And it's the look of someone's hope dying. And if anything, it's probably that look which has kept me working in mental health for 20 odd years. It's that look that I don't want anyone else to have. To be told that there is no hope, that there is no healing for this person. Thankfully, however, after that meeting, my parents were not in agreement <laughs> at all with what had been said, and they battled it, and eventually I was released. One of the parting gifts I was given was a nice diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. That's always a fantastic conversation starter and conversation killer. I do find, however, it's intensely helpful when you're at parties and you notice there's like the last really yummy canapé that's sitting on the table. You usually mention, you know, hi, my name's Egan. Yeah, yeah I'm the one with schizophrenia. That person's going to walk away and leave you with a canapé. So it it's, has its helpful moments. <laughs> The other parting gift they gave me was another little title called Treatment Resistant. That's a fantastic one. Basically it means that the treatment didn't work because somehow you resisted it, instead of the treatment didn't work because maybe the treatment was just crap. What that does mean, however, is that if I ever become unwell again, the treatment approach is quite different. A whole bunch of guys in blue uniforms with batons are going to show up, probably with a few dogs as well. They're going to take you down any way they possibly can. Then they're going to handcuff you, put you in the back of a car. They're going to take you off to a psychiatric ward. You're going to get tossed into a seclusion room. A couple of really large guys with really big needles are going to leap on you. And they're going to inject you and put you to sleep. I went nuts a few times. And pretty much the treatment was keep Egan asleep till he stops being nuts. I pretty much maintained stability from about the age of 23. So it was like over a five-year period. My initial was in there for six months. However, adding all the other times that I've been returned to psychiatric wards, I've spent over two years in total locked up in acute psychiatric facilities. Where my healing did start was when I was discharged. I was returned back to Tūrangi and I back with my parents. I was put in touch with one tōhunga who I already knew, and he was what's termed a tōhunga rungua. So he would prescribe me natural medicines, basically just to clean out my system. His partner was more a tōhunga wairua, um, someone who moved within, I guess, the spiritual realms. She taught me various things around karakia or prayers and incantations that I can use to help calm myself and, and settle what's going on for me. I'm 46, soon to be 47, so I spent half my life actually in a process of recovery, of living towards maintaining balance within these experiences and, and learning ways of doing it. I've not always been successful. Since the age of 23, I have had probably three real big major relapses where I really lost touch with reality. And those were usually driven by stress. I have a terrible habit of saying yes to everything that I should have said no seven things before then. <laughs> I haven't been institutionalised over any of them. They've just been managed within the family. That's the big question, is my experience psychosis at all? I mean, by every clinical definition, absolutely. They would be deemed floridly psychotic. There isn't a single moment in my day that I'm not experiencing what would be termed some form of hallucination or, or delusion. So the system is right. My diagnosis totally and absolutely textbook fits. Where it doesn't fit is that I don't fit. 
I, I don't fit into that nice little box. So no, I don't agree that I have paranoid schizophrenia at all. I tend to view my experiences purely as a very spiritual and cultural experience. I, I see what I experience as simple papa. I see it as, as my ancestry. What I will acknowledge, however, is if I don't manage what I experience, that most certainly can drive me unwell. Quite often people say, well, how do you come to grips with your paranoid schizophrenia? I always ask them, well, how do you? <laughs> you know, what sense do you make of it? I've made my sense of it. It's just that my truth does not fit your definition. So via the textbook definition, the fact that I see and hear multiple things all day, every day, should technically exclude me from things like full-time work. It should stop me from being a present father or any of that sort of stuff. It should have kept me from going back to university and obtaining numerous tertiary qualifications. I mean, most people find it hard enough to study. Try it when you've got a couple of dozen voices in your head <laughs> as well, you know, it gets a little bit harder to do because it's not easy living the life I live. I have real crap days where it's 50-50 whether I want to keep living, <laughs> but, but I kind of made a choice uh, many years ago. When no amount of treatment's gonna change what's in your head, then you live with it or you die with it. It gets that easy. You live or you die and you make your choice. I make my choice to live. People need to stop asking why it happens and start asking how can I help? What can I do for you? How can I make this in any way easier for you? Don't get hung up on someone's diagnostic label. Don't get hung up on a disorder or a diagnosis. Simply because these three people over here may have a very similar diagnosis doesn't mean their distress is going to be exactly the same. Focus on the stuff that's actually problematic for the person, not what you think is problematic for the person. This person might actually be just fine sitting there dancing with the unicorns and singing with the elves. That's fine, as long as they're not distressing, as long as that unicorn isn't pooping all over their yard and the elves aren't smashing their place up. People have asked me before, if there was a medication that you could take that would make this all stop, would you take it? My answer is no, absolutely not, because these experiences are who I am, even though these experiences aren't all that pretty. When I walk through town and I look at a person, it's like I can see right through that person's body. It's literally like an X-ray vision going on. You can see that person's entrails, you can see that person's heart beating, you can see that person's brain inside their skull, you can see all that sort of stuff. That kind of actually puts you off your food a little bit. I tend to see demonic entities as well, and those are all through the world. I see little creatures that crawl and scuttle around that would freak most people out. I kind of laugh when people watch horror movies and get scared and I'm sitting there looking at it going, Matt, that's a kiddies cartoon. <laughs> yeah, okay, see this. All good. Yeah, yeah, it's intensely horrific, some of the things that I see. But even then, I wouldn't shut it out because that's just the other side of the, you know, that's the dark side of the moon. That's the other side of the coin. You know, you can't have one without the other. I don't just hear bad stuff. I hear really, really good stuff as well. I want to keep the good stuff, so I won't take that pill. I won't push that magic button that's going to shut the wall off. Because I don't just see demons, I see angels as well. Our boy wasn't sleeping. He was young and with first-time parents. He would have this real horrific, terrified scream and we would run into his room to check on him. And he would be petrified, he would be shaking and stuff like that. And I'd have this sense that something had been in his room. 
fact, I ended up blessing his room a number of times, but I think at the time I was just so angry that some spirit had been messing with my boy that I don't think I was in the right space to do any form of blessing on that. I spoke with the tohunga or a healer that I know quite well. He told me, just hand it over, just say karakia and hand it over to the angels to deal with. So I did that. And then that evening, my wife and I were fast asleep. And then I woke up and there was this golden light. I could see it coming down the coming down the corridor. My wife also woke up at the same time, just as this great big golden pillar of light kind of drifted past our door. And I said, oh, it's okay. It's, it's just an angel coming in to help. And after that, I mean, my, my son, he slept really soundly from that point on. The sense I got, that golden light was very familiar. I think it was that male one was there when I was three. Yeah, I think he got sent. Thanks for listening to Out of My Mind. If you want to subscribe to the full series or learn more about the people I've interviewed, check out stuff.co.nz slash outofmymind. If this episode has brought up any difficult thoughts or feelings for you, the website has helpline numbers and links to mental health resources. And if you feel like you need help right now, you can make a free call or text to 1737, where you can talk with the counsellor and get some immediate support. Out of My Mind was made for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. It was supported by a Like Minds, Like Mind grant from the Mental Health Foundation. Engineering by Alex Chalkoff at Department of Post. Music by Audio Network. My editorial advisor was Eugene Bingham. And special thanks also to Tammy Allen and Katrina Ferguson. Full credits on the website. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review with lots of stars. It helps new listeners find us. See ya.